I really do think the lead in over the music should be just us awkwardly talking for 10 minutes about how to start a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And that being said, I am Abigailia Siobhan. This is Joe Wells with me, and we are the We Are Neurodivergent Moments podcast. Here we are. Hello, Abigailia. We're here. We're here, and we did a fabulous interview with Rufus Hound. It was amazing, wasn't it? He poured his heart out. He did. He told us so much stuff, and... uh, Rufus Hound was recently diagnosed with ADHD, and um, he proved it uh, that he had ADHD throughout the entire podcast (laughs) by showing up 30 minutes late, by not getting off when he was supposed to, so he was running late for his next meeting. Uh, Oh, God. So many feels for that guy. <laughs> I was so torn because he was so fascinating and interesting, but I knew that he had to be in a meeting sort of 10 minutes ago. So I wanted to hear more from him, but also I didn't want to get him in trouble. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I was the same way. I was like, we've got, I don't, I don't want him to be in trouble, but I want him to keep talking. Okay. But it was great. It was great. And the topic was family. Yes. We've all got them. Yes. we've Family. <laughs> Everyone's got one. Uh, What's your family set up? My family set up, well, my parents were married all through my high school, uh, my childhood. And then my senior year of high school, they got divorced, which was like excellent timing for me. A really joyous last year at home. Uh, But no, I mean, to be honest, uh, just to get dark real quick, uh, my parents were in an unhappy marriage since as long as I can remember. So when they sat us down um, and told us that they were going to get divorced, we were all just like, yep, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. (laughs) We're going to go back. I'm going to go back to listening to musicals and my brother's going to go back to his PlayStation and we're all just going to continue with our days. (laughs) <laughs> and now, obviously, we're all grown up, and uh, my siblings live all over America. My mom lives in Indiana, and my dad is uh, dead. There's no way to say that. That's nice. And the, I right, um, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm socially awkward at the, at the best of times, and uh, I'm so very sorry to hear that. That's. Um, uh, I literally just said that, and I saw your shoulders go up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm this is uh, you know, I uh, as a tangent I and I am so and it's the worst thing to find difficult because there's no sympathy for me but I'm so bad at being the person who um receives bad news or, or like hears someone else's bad news you know and I and I am because it goes there's no scripts for me uh when I I when something like that comes up and I can't. I get no sympathy as well because nothing bad has happened to me. I'm sorry to hear about your dad. <laughs> that is amazing. I, nothing. I've only had an easy life. God, God bless you, <laughs> Joe Wells. <laughs> no, it's fine. He like just to ease everyone's like I'm being very glib about it. But he passed away about ten years ago, and of course it was it was very sad uh, when it happened. But you kind of you know you make peace with it, and then you move on and. Uh, and then you get to just uh, announce on one of your very first episodes that your dad's dead and uh, watch everyone turn off the podcast right then. <laughs> but what about you? What's your what's your family sitch? Well, ostensibly, very um, small C conservative. Mum and dad have always been married. 
Um, you lived in, uh, grew up in the suburbs. So I've got a sister. Um, there's so my mum's side of the family is where the neurodivergence comes from. Okay. Um, my dad's side very neurotypical. Um, but uh, and it's interesting it's talking about your parents. My parents on paper shouldn't work. I don't think they're very very different. But something something works between them, and they they have, I never see them argue, um, or there's never a sort of crossword. But I I don't I don't know what what uh, what's happening in their relationship. But um, they something works, even though they are completely different people. Um, I mean, my mum, I've talked about a lot of this on on, but she is sort of I guess sort of has a lot of she's not full like new age homeopathy type. But she she believes that plants can sense guilt and should be used in criminal investigations. So in her ideal world, instead of like a justice system, we would have plants and you could introduce different... If you were accused of a crime, you'd be introduced to um, different plants and they would sort of sense um, the guilt inside you. And that that's how we should run our justice system. I, so uh, she's got I some re- out there ideas. <laughs> I really like how you were like, you know, my mom's not like really into homopathy or anything like <laughs> that. And then you said the most outlandish, all respect to Mrs. Wells, by the way, <laughs> uh, outlandish thing. How, but okay, so I have so many questions. How does the, the plant communicate the guilt or innocence of a person? If they can sense it, let's say that's true. How do they communicate it? Oh, this is that she's got a book. Um, called, I think it's called The Secret Life of Plants. My sister feels very strongly about this as well. Um, I think they sort of shake, or um, it sort of um, it can damage their their growth if they're around guilty people. So if you're like a serial killer, then all your house plants are just going to die. I think is the is the theory. I thought mine were dying because I've never taken care of a house plant before. You've done something really bad. I'm... Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, my God, I just had a flower <laughs> die yesterday. Oh, what have I done? Oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it, and her side of the family are, are you know, uh, amazing. And I probably get on better with my mum's side. Mm. But they are all, I mean, I like, none of them have any diagnosis, but I guess they're all bonkers is how I would describe them. And I mean that in, in the most affectionate way. You know, they're brilliantly... Um, eccentric, you know, there's lots of um, uh, beliefs and sort of fairies and stuff like that and all that sort of thing where, you know, any sort of idea. Um, and I'm never quite sure how much of it's stuff they really believe and how much is that they just love using their imaginations and that sort of runs away with them. I think the the line between those genuine beliefs and their sort of enjoyment of making stuff up um is blurred my uh my mom is i'm convinced has adhd uh but is not diagnosed but she's also real new agey as well uh her dreams she thinks mean something like as far as like telling a future not just like oh maybe i'm really anxious about a thing um and she reads tarot cards um she's paid to have me go to psychics like while i was home she's like you've got to you've got to go to this woman and i remember she paid me she paid for me to go to this one psychic who was like you know and she's just like the psychic's like a white southern lady and uh 
the first thing we got to do is pick out your spirit animal. Now, you, and she, she pulls out this deck of cards with all these animals, like, on them. And she goes, now you pick out your spirit animal once in your life. This is a very big moment, and you will never do it again. But the card you select now is your spirit animal, and that is who you are inside. And in my head, I was like, well, of course you're only supposed to do it once. There's 52 cards. Like, statistically, <laughs> you're just not going to pull the freaking owl every time. <laughs> what what is your spirit animal? I think it was a fox. I can't quite remember, but I'm pretty sure it was a fox. Um which I can get down with. Maybe that's why I moved to England. Uh, <laughs> oh, because there's foxes in England. Oh yes. Uh, well, especially where I live. Uh I was walking home the other day and uh I saw a fox on Camden Road. And it always cracks me up to see them in a city. Like, cause they look like dogs and they're just they're just chilling. They're just living their fox life, not paying any rent. God, it must be good to be a fox. <laughs> I saw a badger the other day. I was driving through the country. I saw a badger, and I didn't. They're very funny-looking badgers, aren't they? I've never seen one in real life. Are they really big? I picture them. So they huge. have, and I, I'm not body shaming the badgers. <laughs> I think they're beautiful. They have very big butts, um, and then they're sort of slimmer. So they're sort of like. Um, sort of dragging their bums behind them. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're very very, um, uh, very funny animals. Oh, that sounds so cute. It was. I'm always scared um, driving late at night through country lanes. My fear is that there'll be, like, um, a ghost girl in the middle of the road when I'm driving late at night, and I'll see that, and I'll have to, and what would I do? Um, so I was, I was relieved when it was just a badger. Oh, it was a badger, and oh, that's how you saw it in the middle of the road. Did you? Did I didn't hit? No, no. Okay, no, good, 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 good. No, I, I, I would, I would crash before I hit. <laughs> I have almost crashed on the M25. I saw, oh my god, I saw a mummy duck and four baby ducks right on the edge of the motorway, and I nearly, I slammed my brakes on the car, nearly went in the back of me, um, but I saved the the ducks. But um, I risked many human lives that day. <laughs> But that would be uh, awful, wouldn't it, to hit to hit the mummy duck and then have the baby ducks left to die as well? I couldn't. Yeah. I, I couldn't do that, so um, I uh, I risked my own life and the lives of other human beings to save that duck. Well, I mean, because everyone was okay, good for you. Yeah. But I mean, the thing too is that, like, talking about families, let's really focus in on these ducks, like. <laughs> Not only if you had just like ran over them, like so in driving school in America, when they talk about like, what if an animal is crossing the road? Like unless it's a deer, because a deer can fuck your car up. Mm. Like if it's a squirrel, if it's a, you just brace yourself and you're not supposed to slow down, which no one actually does this, but because it's so dangerous for all the other cars. But can you imagine if you hadn't stopped, just continue going that speed, ran over that duck, all the cars around you, those people would have been traumatized for a completely different reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I couldn't. Um, I was with um, uh, Sanjay Arif, the comedian, who we were driving to a gig and he said, you should have driven on. And I was like, I couldn't have driven on. He was like, you should have just driven on. And I went, what would you have done? And he thought about it and went, yeah, I would have crashed as well. <laughs> I would have slowed down. But the right thing to do was to drive on. But um, I saved that duck. Good for you. I mean, I think that duck may have later on gone back into the motorway. It clearly didn't know what it was doing. 
but I gave it a little addition to its life. Oh. One time, my sister and I were driving cross country. She was moving from uh, uh, Kentucky to New Mexico, and we did a big cross country trip. And uh, on the side of the road, we saw a turtle on its back. So obviously it can't get up. Ah. And so we pulled over and took the turtle and it, it had been hit. Its shell had been cracked. This might want to edit this out, but I don't know oh, if that no. turtle made it. But it was still like very much alive. Like it looked. And so we like stopped and we got the turtle and we moved him. Like it was a country road we were on. So we moved him down the bank to like a ditch where there was some water and uh but yeah we saved the turtle or at least helped it so hopefully it <laughs> it, it was saved but yeah anyways i feel like i really brought the mood down with that so you're, sorry <laughs> i we were talking about spirit animals and then we went off went off track <laughs> did, did you so did you rebel against your mum's sort of spiritual stuff or did you embrace it so she got really into it when my parents got divorced. Coincidence? I think not. Uh, she was also <laughs> raised Catholic, so she's, you know, she left one one thing for another. And, um, you know, I was open to it, uh, if I'm going to be honest. Like, I didn't roll my eyes when I was curious. I wanted to go to these psychics. Like, she didn't make me do any of this. Um, I w God knows I wouldn't have paid for it myself. But, um, it, I, you know, I thought it was very nice that she wanted to take me and did take me. And um, even now, sometimes she'll offer to read my cards and I always say yes. Um, I like I don't really believe it, but it doesn't bug me that she does. Like if it makes her happy and like, you know, she's not she doesn't run a hotline. She just learned how to read tarot cards for herself and mm. she just can do it and she likes doing it. I don't know. How do you feel about your mom uh, reading plants? <laughs> well, I think, yeah, most of her sort of eccentricities are harmless. I think if she was into sort of homeopathy or or anti-vax or something like that, I think I would that would bother me. Um, but yeah, and I, th I think that my mom has always, you know, even though she, she didn't necessarily have the language around neurodiversity, she's always been very staunchly be proud of who you are and be proud to be different and unusual, you know, and she is, um, you know, even the way she dresses and the way that she, um, you know, is open about believing these sort of odd things and her whole family are just proudly different. And I sort of like, I've always felt like I fitted in more with her family mm -hmm. because they're, they're all different and all weird. And it's sort of, there's no, judgment about who you are at all not that my dad's family are like judgmental but but you know you, it's easy to fit in where everyone is openly oddball yeah um so yeah i i think that it's um i i, I do and i didn't feel this way as a teenager because i think that that um she was incredibly embarrassing as a teenager <laughs> but as an adult i realized that it's it's um it's admirable that she is just so open about her her um, mad beliefs she got pet rats as well which she's weirdly close to um oh i say that they they died recently so oh no been a, no so yeah so they're not this is um i put you in the awkward situation as well you don't know what to say about this i'm so sorry for your <laughs> mother's loss <laughs> but um she was like yeah so you go around her house and there'd be the rats had sort of free run of the house 
Um, so you go in the lounge and she'd be like, "Be careful, there's rats," and uh, <laughs> rats were just somewhere in in the in the lounge. Yeah, but um, sadly, they they've passed away now. Oh, Onto rat heaven. And speaking of rats, <laughs> Rufus Hound is our guest today, and um, yeah, I I just I really really enjoyed talking to him. Uh, how how did you feel about the conversation, Joe? Completely, yeah. I think there's no there's no filter at all with Rufus. You know, it just it was fresh views on his diagnosis. He was so open and honest about things he'd struggled with, and it's um yeah, it was such a there was so much I I related to as well. Even though we have different diagnoses, mm. there was there was that thing of of you know looking back on the relationships you had with your family members and and seeing them in a different light, noticing neurodivergence in your own family. There's so much that I I connected with, even though we have different diagnoses. Yeah, me too. Like, it was just, it was like listening to uh, everything that I haven't been able to verbalize. I was like, yes, in that, in that, especially when he talked about, again, we'll, we'll play it in a minute, but like when he went back to like being like his relationship with his father and like how, like now looking back on, on the fact that, he has ADHD, how that affected his marriage and all that. It's just fascinating. Should we play it? Should we go ahead and play yes. it? Yes. There he is, Rufus Hound. Rufus Hound, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate We're so it. We're happy Welcome. to have you. Oh, I mean, Abby Joe, delighted to be here. I mean, just uh, thank you very much for asking. I, I, I was trying to think of how to introduce you by looking at your CV. Is this a fair comment to say that a lot of ADHD, ADHD people have incredibly eclectic and big CVs? Because you seem to have done everything. Uh, yeah. Um, it's What's fascinating to me is since the ADHD diagnosis, and I, I mean, look, this is undoubtedly something that we'll be picking apart in this podcast, but is that... There's so much about it that when you are told you have it and then you understand it, that makes sense of everything else in your life. And there is some irony to the fact that um, there was a period of time where I was doing loads of people's podcasts and being interviewed on things. I think it was everyone was trying to start a podcast. You look at who's got loads of followers and you think, oh, if we get them, they'll help, you know, and uh, we'll try and build it that way. That's not what plan. Joe and I are doing, by the way. That's not... Well, that's not no. what we've done here, no. Rufus. <laughs> no, no, and I and it would be rude of me to uh, infer <laughs> that that might place I'm buying this. But, um, but how many uh, followers do you have? Yeah, <laughs> it starts with a one. Um, uh, yeah, the um, the the basically there was a period of about three months where I did loads of podcasts, and every podcast introduced me the same way, which was, so what are you then? <laughs> <laughs> and um one in particular was a, a little video thing that i did with richard bacon that was made for amazon or yahoo or something where that was really the whole topic of conversation and i remember really going to great lengths to sort of say to him you know ultimately when you're given opportunities and those opportunities thing feel like things you might like to explore uh, all you can do is take stock of where you are, see what roads are ahead of you and go down the road that seems most interesting and where people like what you've done and you've, you've been lucky enough to get that chance. You know, like I explain all of this away and now I go, yeah, no, it's ADHD. 
uh, basically, <laughs> I, uh, I, I was doing one thing. I felt like I'd done as much as I could be bothered to do in that thing. And then there were a bunch of other things that seemed really much more interesting because I hadn't done them before. And so I was like, oh, OK, I'll do that now. Um, now, the, the reverse of that, uh, you know, the, the inflex of that, possibly, I can't remember, um, is that it also secretly inside me has forever built a feeling that... Um, that why can't you just fucking stick at something you fucking idiot like you know my stand-up career was going well enough that if i'd have just stuck at stand-up i could be earning you know romish ranganathan money by this point um but instead i got to a point in doing stand-up and then tv stuff started coming in and i was like oh that seems fun uh and so jumped across to that even though i love stand-up and you know loved being a stand-up then you know, a combination of people not doing what they said they would do, and that's how television works, meant that I then felt absolutely compelled to tell some of those people to fuck off. <laughs> and that then inhibited the amount of uh, work I was likely to get in that industry, at which point the thing I'd always dreamt of doing, which was being a stage actor, turned up. So I was like, great, I want to be a stage actor. That's the thing that makes sense. And to be honest, in terms of what actually feels like it fits best in my soul, theatre really is it because I get you know they they the rehearsals is the preparation period so somebody says be here at this time and then we're going to do you know a month's preparation or six weeks preparation or two months preparation and then every night you have to be in a place where hundreds of people are going to watch you do your job so you know on the one hand, I've always thought, oh, the love of the theatre, live storytelling, you know, um, changing the world through hearts and souls. And now I just see it as, yeah, because every other job you had that didn't pay you to do the preparation and, and force you to have hundreds of people relying on you being there when you said you would, I got fired from. Because I was like, ah, I'd be all right. <laughs> you know, if I can come up with a good enough excuse and then pour on enough charm, I'll get away with it. <laughs> you, you're basically ex just said my entire inner monologue for the last couple, ye <laughs> couple years. Because you were, you were just recently diagnosed right yeah um so in uh, the pandemic came march 2020 um all of my work disappeared i had I had no understanding of how much of my own self-worth was um defined by doing jobs and mm -hmm. doing work mm -hmm. um so wasn't really aware to the fact that crippling depression was descending on me uh at a rate of knots like most people at that period who i think you know a lot of people felt very similar things not just people with you know undiagnosed neurodiversities but just at large um you just think well i just gotta get through it you know just that's all i can do so i just drank a lot really and then um uh having kind of held the world at bay via substances <laughs> um a few things started coming up uh like odd days of work here and there and panel shows and uh, and that kind of things and i worked with someone who um i i don't know how vocal she is about this diagnosis so i don't feel it's my place to out her you know mm -hmm. but um essentially it was uh a comedian that I had worked with on and off over the years, and we'd always got on terribly, terribly well. 
And in a break of filming, she said to me, yeah, everything feels different since my diagnosis. And I went, oh, what diagnosis? She said, oh, I've been diagnosed with ADHD. And what did I say? Drum roll, please. <laughs> you haven't got ADHD. What are you on about? <laughs> um, and she went, yeah, I have. And I was like, no. All right, then, come on, then, explain to me. How have you got ADHD? At which point she explained a bunch of stuff and how that had felt and how it had manifested for her. And uh, I said, um, but that isn't ADHD. That's just how brains work. And she said, no, it isn't. And I said, yes, it is. And she said, no, Rufus, it isn't. <laughs> I, I had the exact same thing when my boyfriend was trying to tell me I have ADHD and he kept being like X, Y, and Z. And I was like, everyone does that. And he's like, no, no, not everyone does that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the other, um, I think the other weird kind of thing that, I, I mean, we're going to jump backwards and forwards to pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis because yep. the analysis of what I was doing, I only have now that I've been diagnosed and understand it much better. So forgive me that this chronologically, this is basically memento. But um, the thing I now realize is that most of the people I'm closest to in the world are neurodiverse. So the reason I've been able to maintain friendships with those people is because their brains work how my brains work, whereas people who don't have that have largely seen me as, oh, yeah, you know, he was all around while he was around, and then the moment he wasn't around, just never heard from him again. Whereas the people who I do love and then, you know, would reach out to, they're like, yeah, man, totally get it. Don't worry, you were busy. No problem. So I think without knowing that most of the people I was closing to have similar traits to adhd traits even if they're not you know adhd fully or i don't know how you would put that or whether there are gradations of adhd or what have you but um but i think that also builds a sense of like yeah but that's just what brains are like because the people i'm friends with all work in exactly the same way <laughs> so you're not seeing it from the outside looking in you're seeing it from the inside looking out yeah one hundred percent. One of the things that like when I was diagnosed that I learned about with ADHD is objects, permanence. And one of our symptoms is if it's not in front of us, it's not there, Doesn't exist. Yeah. which for stuff, it's like, OK, I understand that. But what really floored me is when like it extends to people as well. So like my family segueing into the topic uh is uh lives in america so i obviously don't get to see my family all that much and as much as i love them and as much as i think about them for some reason i have a real struggle reaching out and contacting them yeah yeah i listened to a podcast called revisionist history hosted by malcolm gladwell and it's phenomenal. I can only recommend that podcast. Absolutely listen to it. It's sublime. But he did a, a, a mini series within that that was all about memory and how everybody thinks their memory is the true version of what happened. But there have been some pretty high profile cases. And he um, was talking about an American newscaster who claimed he was there um, during like Black Hawk Down, the movie, that incident, and that Hillary Clinton was shot down and that he was in the helicopter behind. He wasn't. He was elsewhere. He was. But I think it might be Brian Williams was his name. 
Um, but he told that story on the open dinner, you know, after dinner speaking circuit and all sorts, but he was there. And then somebody pointed out he wasn't. And it was portrayed as like, what a fucking liar. Like this guy claiming he was in the middle of this war zone and he wasn't. He was back in the base when all that happened and we can prove it. And all Brian Williams could say was, look, I appreciate how this looks. And if it was the other way around, I would agree. But I've told that story like hundreds of times. And as far as I, I've got it in my mind, like that is what happened. I fully accept that is not what it was. And so this deep dive on memory, Malcolm Gladwell talked to neurologists and specialists in the field. And they said, that is how our brains work, is that you tell a story and somebody adds in their little bit. And then the next time you think of that story, you don't think of the memory, you think of the telling the story. And if somebody added their little bit, then suddenly you go, oh, no. Um, and then they were there, too. And they were, you know, that this is a very poorly worded explanation of the fact that what seems to happen is that our brains hold the information that they hold. But then when we go to recall that information or deal with that information, our brains then tell us a story that makes that information make sense or, or, or where there's five bits of information that our brains fill in the gaps. We haven't actually remembered the gaps, so our brain fills them in with a story that makes sense of it. In terms of dealing with family, therefore, I have always felt like the way my dad um was with me was look son i know you love me and i love you if you need me you know where i am but i don't need you to phone me every five minutes and check in go and live your life go you know i'm busy you're busy just get on with it it's fine i've grown up I mean, that's a lie uh, <laughs> <laughs> i've gotten older <laughs> um with the kind of real sense of like, yeah, that's the, that's the true love. That's the real love. It's not about making some great effort. It's about just knowing it and having that uh, and then being free to be who you want to be alongside it. But now I've got children of my own and I am somebody who spends an inordinate amount of time away from them. I've carried that same feeling, right? Like I don't need to check in with you all the time. I, you know, you're with your mum. If there was any great emergency, I would be alerted immediately. So I don't need to do that checking in and I don't need you to check in with me either. The problem is that since uh, the ADHD diagnosis and the absolutely crippling existential crisis that came immediately there afterwards, I've been in some pretty intensive counselling that has been, you know, just eviscerating really. But then through that, the knowledge of like, no, you fucking dummy. It's all about the checking in. It is all about making the effort. Love is not a thing that you say you have and then you own it and then great, move on. Love is a thing you do. It's a verb, not a noun. Yeah. Um, I have one question and then uh, Joe, sorry, I did talk to Joe before we started recording being like, I need to make sure I don't take over this interview because I haven't said it to you very time and I've totally done that. So I have one more question and then Joe, I'm going to turn it over to you. But regarding your relationship with your father and him just being like, I'm here if you need me. Yeah. Do you think, and I assume uh, this is under the assumption that your father does not have a diagnosis. Do you think he might also have ADHD? So he kind of lived under that same thing as well. Well, we're going to get into the real nitty gritty here, I think, because 
there is undoubtedly a uh, inherited component within ADHD, you yes. know, and and the fact that that pattern does seem to follow family lines um, means that you can absolutely say it is a genetically um, based. Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, it's not a disease. It's not a, a condition. A I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, a neurotype. Thank you. Yeah. Um, that it's that it is passed on in that way. However, the in talking to my psychiatrist and uh, and reading a, a lot about it, the model of ADHD that actually makes most sense to me is this. And again, this is just going to be me talking for ages, so I can only apologise. But uh, you know, this is how my brain works. I've got the whole idea in my head, and now I have to tell you every aspect of it. Otherwise, I feel like you haven't got the whole picture, and it doesn't make sense. Again, if you listen back to any podcast interview I've given, quite early on, I apologise with the phrase: nobody has ever asked me a question where I don't feel the need to start at the birth of the universe and work forward. <laughs> um, so, my best understanding of ADHD is this. Human beings existed for 300 plus thousand years as cavemen. We operated tribally. Based on what primatologists would tell us, our tribes were about 150 strong. In a tribe of about 150, you need a lot of people doing all the main shit that the tribe does. But it's also very, uh, very useful to have a small proportion of that tribe, four to five percent, let's say, who aren't really that good at doing what the rest of the tribe is doing, but are actually very good at things like being the night watchman and thinking about what's over that hill and not dealing with the immediate need, but thinking past the immediate need to what might be beneficial for everybody. You do not want lots of those people, but you do want a few of them. Well, it may well be that that, proportion is also representative in society the estimation is that adhd is massively underdiagnosed in our society but the rate at which they think it is true for people seems to be around about four percent between i think they say between three and five percent so what we're born with is a predisposition towards certain ways of thinking and certain ways of behaving um I think it's pr very common with uh, ADHD folks that we're much more night owls than we are um, larks. You know, it's all about staying up late and that a lot of us don't feel like we really come alive till 10 o'clock at night. Well, if you were a night watchman sitting you know, next to a fire by a cave, keeping an eye out for tigers, your brain's going all the time at night. OK, you know, where's this? Where's that? Where's the other? Um, what is it that everyone's doing tomorrow? Fine. But then what happens the day after that and the day after that? Um, that that when you see it that way, all of the traits we have as people with ADHD suddenly make perfect sense. And moreover, they are useful in society or in that tribal society at the very least. What I don't necessarily think is the case is that if you are born with those traits or with the genetic predisposition towards those traits, that you do then necessarily end up as feeling like it's ADHD, is neurodiversity, that it's in the way of living your life. And instead, what there seems to be is an early developmental emotional element to it, because 
if you're given to those certain traits, chances are as a kid, you are basically quite annoying. Um, and unless you've got a parent or a, or a, literally a tribe around you that can deal with you for an hour here and an hour there and an hour there, where you feel connected to all of those people, in the modern world, that responsibility is normally given to one woman. And she has to deal with you all the time. And, you know, if you come from a family where you've got siblings, they're not just dealing with you, they're dealing with you and these other kids. So you end up receiving a sense in early childhood often, but certainly, I mean, in early, early childhood, in like, you know, up until two, three years old. But then certainly thereafter, as you go into the wider world and school and the like, which is cut that out, stop it, be quiet, don't do that. So what you learn is if I'm me or if I'm just being myself, the world wants me to stop doing that. Mm. And how then ADHD functions is that every task that comes in is filtered, I think possibly consciously as your, by your early child brain, but then is pathologized and just built in as a reaction. A task comes into your brain you break down the 400 things that not only could it be, but it should be, that it shouldn't be, that it shouldn't could be, that it, you know, like, and it's so overwhelming that you just go, oh, okay, I'll do that in a minute. I'll go and do this other thing instead. That's what makes the ADHD thing kind of crippling, ultimately, is that there is this predisposition towards certain traits but then the learned understanding that you being yourself isn't required or needed. And therefore, everything you're asked to do gets parsed out of your brain as, well, don't do that because think of all the things that could go wrong and all the people that would be upset and how bad it will be. You asked me about my dad. I've told you all of that stuff. I absolutely could well believe that my father has ADHD. And when I got my diagnosis and started the therapy, literally, I started the therapy on the, on the Friday and on the Sunday, the day, you know, 24 hours later, I phoned my mum for two and a half hours, my brother for three hours and my dad for four hours. Because it was like, I need to make sense of a lot of the stuff that just came up in counselling, all to do with childhood and whatever. Wow. But, but during that conversation, specifically with my dad, I said to him, when I look back on how you've lived your life and how you've treated us and how, uh, you know, your marriage to mum went down and all of those things, if I see that through the prism of ADHD, it all makes perfect sense. But you have spent the last 20 years of your life telling everybody that you're just this terrible man, that you're an awful person that's only ever been selfish and only ever made decisions that suited him and to hell with the cost and to hell with everyone else. What I believe is if you've got undiagnosed ADHD and you are compelled to make certain choices without understanding why you feel compelled to make them, what your brain does is fill in the gaps to make it make sense. Well, why would you go and sleep with that woman who wasn't your wife? Why wouldn't you go home to your wife and children? Why wouldn't you go and play golf instead? Why wouldn't you do all of these things? Yeah. 
the only version of that story that makes sense if you don't understand oh i'm predisposed to want to do those things don't get me wrong i'm not letting him off the hook for the pain that he caused or the you know choices he made necessarily but i would love it if he was able to let himself off the hook for being this sort of terrible scumbag however that man is in his early 70s now and that story that he's told himself about who he is is so deep down that even my suggestion that that might be true for him, he went, well, that's interesting, but I've got to tell you, you're wrong. I'm just, you know, I'm not, I'm just never been a good person. Wow. And you gave him such a huge olive branch. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. Such a, such a gesture of, I don't, I don't want to say forgiveness because I don't know if that's where it came from, but such a, such a such a moment of understanding that i don't think a lot of kids like me included with my own parents ha have like extended that sort of thing after such a childhood you know yeah well but i mean again that came on the back of um having had that conversation yeah, again back welcome back to memento Having had that conversation um, in the summer of 2020, I then had it in the back of my mind of like, well, maybe that is a thing. Maybe I should look into that. Of course, the only way you can look into it is on the internet. And now suddenly I'm just like waving red flags in front of my own face being like, are you about to be somebody who diagnoses yourself with something off the internet? Because like, geez, how many, how many doctors do you need to be screaming? Please, people stop doing that. But in looking at it, it felt like it explained a lot. And then I became terribly worried that I was convincing myself that I had something that explained my own bad behavior, right? Like here I was, I just split from my wife at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and we'd been in uh, marriage guidance counseling for some time prior to that. Um, a lot of the things I've been trying to express just didn't seem to make sense to uh, her during that process, I think. And I can completely understand why it's, uh, if anybody infers from this conversation that I'm down on that woman, I would like them very much not to, because I don't, you know, I didn't understand myself. How the hell was she meant to? Mm. <laughs> um, but then having looked into it and done some online tests and been rated in the like, yeah, it's between 90 and 100% that this is something that is true for you. I then went to the NHS because I didn't want to pay for it because I worry that when you pay for medical advice you're quite there's a kind of tacit understanding of look if i'm going to give you 800 quid then you better find something whereas with the nhs it's a lot more like well unless we really do find something we're not we haven't got the money or the resources to treat you for it so i felt like that would be the most honest assessment ultimately um now having been through that assessment i think my opinion on that is somewhat different but that's how i felt at the time mm -hmm. however there was obviously going to be an enormous waiting list for that kind of assessment on the NHS. So from the point at which I'd done that test to the point I then actually got my assessment was a year. And in that year, because I'd started Googling ADHD and reading into it, all of my algorithms shifted to being about here's what ADHD is, here's how it manifests, here's how it works. And at the point where, you know, the industry I worked in had largely shut down at the point I've left my family home and left my children in that family home. Uh, at the point I didn't really have anywhere to live. At the point where I don't really know if I'm going to have a living after all of this ends. I then kind of, if I hadn't have stayed completely intoxicated, 
I think I would have been forced to have to ask myself the questions about how I had behaved in that marriage. And, you know, I was asking myself those questions anyway, but I think, what am I trying to say? That the thing about the understanding that ADHD may be true for me is it made sense of so many of the things I was profoundly troubled by having been. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's so so much. I think so many of these podcasts. I'm just going to be sat here going, "This is so relatable." Yeah. I don't know whether you find when you talk to other neurodivergent people, it's like a freaky thing where you go, "It's like you're talking to me about parts of my life." Um, so relatable. Yeah, I think that idea of creating narratives. My whole life until I had an autism diagnosis, I hated people who like football. I thought they were bad people. And yeah. now I realise it's because I went to football matches with my dad's a kid and they were noisy and I felt unsafe at those. And I don't like it when people shout and are noisy and it's not that they're bad people. And I've, But I've connected that. I've gone, I feel really unsafe here. These people must be bad. And I've had this sort of real visceral prejudice. Um, yeah. But uh, if it, it, what, I'm fascinated by... Because uh, so much of what you're saying, I guess you're talking about the sort of social model of disability, you know, the, the, the things which are disabling don't necessarily come from within us, they come from the way we're treated as neurodivergent people. Um, and I was really interested, when you um, tweeted about ADHD, you said, I've been diagnosed as neurodivergent. And that was the first time I'd seen someone, a newly diagnosed person, using the language of neurodiversity. Where, where did, I, I guess I'm interested, where, where did those sort of ideas come from? Because they seem quite at odds with the sort of medical model of of neurodivergence which is you know there's something wrong with you yeah um honestly all from my psychiatrist um uh, when i got my assessment they assigned a psychiatrist to me for that assessment and i was pretty bought in um i i, I think we can't necessarily have this conversation without talking about the importance of tiktok in all of this to be perfectly <laughs> honest um there was a thing a couple of years ago uh, and several articles written about it, and you know, it was a bit of a uh, talking point for a month or so. That TikTok was this absolutely hideous thing because it was convincing people they had uh, bipolar disorder and um, uh, oh Christ, you know, I'm trying to reel them off and they're not coming to mind. But um, that essentially TikTok was convincing people that they had all sorts of um, deep-seated mental health problems and the like. Um, and that wasn't that terrible, basically, that, you know, here was this thing that you were watching for ostensibly, you know, makeup tutorials and dance videos. And now it was convincing everybody that they were broken and that, you know, they needed fixing and wasn't this awful. However, in the last few months, there's been quite a lot of articles by psychiatrists saying, holy shit. The number of people who are actually autistic, who are who do actually have ADHD, who do actually have BPD, who wouldn't who would never have looked into this, who would never have come forward, were it not for the fact that they started seeing a few things crop up, thought, oh, that's interesting, that sort of describes me. And then because they like that, then another video comes up and another video comes up until the amount of material they've seen about it feels like it's talking so directly to them that it's it's um, unignorable that you have to then think, well, I really should look into that. That actually TikTok to a degree may well have convinced a number of people who do not have any uh, part of 
do not have any neuro any who are not neurodiverse necessarily that they might be but the whole point of going for an assessment is to find out whether that is actually true of you so entering into um the process of being assessed feels like it's that actually sorry that entering into the process of being assessed is something that has tiktok has encouraged in people who did genuinely need to be <laughs> steered that way um so that thing of me saying all my algorithms having looked into it were shifting that way it was tiktok it was katiosaurus and um ethan whatever i um, forget all the details of course because they are just details that i can look up and therefore my brain jettisons the actual information in <laughs> yeah. favor of the picture of what it is but um yeah just like a bunch of uh both it was like people with adhd talking about their experience uh and then a lot of um uh, adhd specialist therapists and the like saying if this thing is true for you the one that really got me actually was um, a doctor on youtube who I, I think the video was called something like if you think you may have ADHD, maybe consider this simple test. And um, the simple test that he laid out was, if ADHD is true for you, this may well be the pattern of your school life. And it was, you were reasonably well liked at school by your peers and did relatively well up until um, your uh, GCSEs. And at your GCSEs, you may have either done surprisingly well or just kind of well enough. However, when A-levels came, it began to all fall apart a bit. And to that point, you either then ended up at university and dropping out or at university and spending extra time there or um, just not bothering with university at all. His point was that up until your GCSEs, you can actually get away with not really doing a great deal because even though and I, any 16-year-olds listening to this, I'm sorry for um, <laughs> uh, saying it in the way that I'm about to say it, but GCSEs aren't that hard, ultimately. That actually, if you've just been to the lessons and got a vague idea about the subject, if you sit down with a gun to your head for a week before the exam and try and take in everything that you learn over that term, there's a reasonable chance you can kind of do it, actually. And so you don't do terribly badly in your GCSEs. The difference with A-levels is that process does not hold. You can't do well at A-levels and just leave it to the last week and then gen up and hope for the best. Then in terms of using those A-levels to go to university, you know, you didn't quite get the results. You end up not at the university you wanted to go to. And then once you're at university, you realize, oh, this is just like consistent work on one topic all the way through. And so that feels undoable and you drop out. Or uh, you um, uh, kind of soldier on, but it's all a bit, you know, every, every deadline is just kind of missed. And, it, and that's why you end up spending extra time there. Well, every fucking school report I ever had <laughs> would back up this whole thing of like, he, he could actually be really good at this if he just tried. Mm -hmm. So like that immediately rang a bell. Then the GCSE thing, like, yeah, I was the kid that got A stars, you know, absolutely got A stars in the three subjects I liked. <laughs> like, you know, my, my capacity to do the work and do the study was unquestionable. But in the ones I wasn't that bothered about, I mean, economics, I got a D, 
because once I found out that it was supply and demand and that that was basically what governed everything, everything else just felt like magic spells and supposition. It's like, this isn't a science. A science is something testable. This is all just people, Justin Bunnings after the event going, oh, yeah, well, of course it was this. You think, yeah, it's all bollocks. And I literally, within three weeks, thought that and then never gave a shit about economics easily ever again. Um, A-levels, I spent three years doing A-levels, having fucked up the first year and then did an evening class and one thing and another. And by the time I was 19 finishing my A-levels, I had I knew one thing and one thing only, and that was there was no point going to university because all that would happen is I'd emerge with £30,000 of student debt, most of which I would have spent in the pub. <laughs> Hearing this guy lay it out like that, it was honestly, I mean, you said yourself, Joe, you know, so much of this feels relatable, but it was that moment of just being like, fucking hell. It isn't just that there's this ADHD thing that makes it a bit hard to function in the world. It's like from when I was tiny, this thing, this propensity, these traits were defining what I would then go on to do, who I would then go on to be, how I would then go on to operate and see the world. And if it was happening at that point, and we would all, I would imagine, anybody neurodiverse or not, contend with the idea that who we were as kids had some effect on who we then were as teenagers, had some effect on who we were as adults. Who we all are is built on those foundations that realizing that the tendrils of ADHD, it was like, well then, Am I just, am I a person who has made all of these choices based on thinking and logic and being rational? Or am I really just a collection of symptoms <laughs> that is using this person to remain alive or using this like <laughs> physical body to, you know, exist? It's like invasion of the body snatchers. Like here I am thinking there's a me, but actually maybe what there is is just ADHD using this version of me to continue on in the world. And that is a fucking head spinner because frankly, I'm not entirely convinced that, that isn't the case. <laughs> I'm not me because I chose to be like this. I'm me because this is what I was like. And this is how that story you know, is told when you start with those conditions at the beginning of it. I feel like that's the, the, the autobiography title, a collection of symptoms using a human to stay alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was amazing and so fascinating to talk. And I just, I know I'm going to watch this back and um, forget to edit it because I'll, I'll watch it all back again and, and just take it in. So this will go out in probably late May. Um, where can people see what you're doing? Well, I know a short answer is required. You're going to get a slightly longer answer. <laughs> As a result of the diagnosis, the existential crisis, the crippling depersoning, I looked at my diary, I phoned my agents and I said, well, what work is out there? And they said, well, we think there might be some, but we can't tell you it's enough. And I said, okay, well then, what am I meant to do? Just cross my fingers and hope for the best. And in so doing, remembered that I'd worked some time ago with an aerialist who'd worked for circuses. And she said, you'd be an amazing ringmaster. And that that had been the last time I had felt that pang of the new, the novel, the opportunity, the bliss that that might bring. And in talking to her about the reality of working in circuses, it was working with a small group of people, almost like a tribe, where the boss was on site, almost like a tribe leader, that you could go to directly and ask a direct question to and get a direct answer, almost like a tribal structure that would absolutely benefit my ADHD brain. That the work was physical, therefore the work that you had achieved, you could point out and say, yeah, I actually did that. 
which would very much suit my ADHD brain, that it still involved showing off and being part of the team and, you know, was out front and um, spreading joy and affordable for everyone. And, 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 and. And at that point, I phoned some circuses and said, I don't suppose you're looking for a ringmaster. And then I met a man called Kenny, who is self-diagnosed ADHD, having now befriended the man. I can tell you, I certainly would suggest that he's probably right in that (laughs) self-diagnosis. And since that point, we have hyperfixated on everything to do with running away and joining the circus to the point that having made that phone call four days later, he was on the phone offering me a job with his family circus. So when this podcast goes out in May, I will be the ringmaster, the co-ringmaster, the trainee ringmaster for Paulo's Circus, um, which by May onwards, I can't tell you where we're at. But if you go to thegreatestshowman.co.uk, or it might just be Greatest Showman, or just Google Paulo's Circus, um, you'll find out where we are. But largely going to be in Newquay for um, most of the summer. That is so cool that you've run away and joined the circus. <laughs> that, that sounds like that's something I'd threatened to do when my mum told me to tie in my room and you, you've made it a reality. That's so cool. Yeah, I bought a ferret and I'm going to go and live in a van because <laughs> ultimately, fuck capitalism, fuck corporate life, <laughs> fuck everything that is crushing our ability to feel joy and connection with each other. Let me send in the clowns and be happy doing that. <laughs> I think I that's the it. that's gonna be the episode title. I bought a ferret and I'm going to live in a van. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Rufus, thank you so much for coming on. We will talk to you soon and congratulations on joining the circus, man. Thank you. I did my best to stop to to take the tablets that I worried would make they were normal person pills. And so my reaction against that has been to become less normal than I've ever been in my life. Hey, Abigail, do you know about Podspike? Uh, yes, I do, in fact, because they are our sponsor for this episode. Oh, wonderful sponsors. Um, so I'm sure there are people who are po- budding podcasters or who have a special interest they want to make a podcast about. Here's a question. If you weren't, if this all falls apart, <laughs> what would you, what are your other podcast ideas? Well, I am an avid lover of peanut butter, so I would like to do a podcast someday where I try all the brands of peanut butter and discuss them like fine wines. The peanut butter podcast. The peanut butter podcast. That's actually really good. I know that that was a that was you saying that slightly is a silly joke, but I would listen listen to that. You could have guests on yeah. bringing their own favorite peanut butter. Uh, literally, as I said it, I was like, now I want to make that podcast. <laughs> what about you? If if uh, if you were to make another uh, podcast in your podcast roster, what would it be, Joe Wells? Mine would be about how to save money on train journeys in the UK. I'm becoming an expert in that. And I would teach the listeners about how to split train fares. It might be a little bit boring, but I'd make it fun. Okay. It'd be one of those things where people go, it sounds boring, the Split Your Ticket podcast but he makes it really entertaining. Hey, that's a podcast I'd listen to because that's a podcast I need. But you know what? Sometimes it's hard to break through as a podcast, and that is where Podspike comes in. 
Yeah, so paying for PR for you, for a podcast can cost thousands of pounds. But what Podspike have done is they've made it really manageable so you can have access to bite-sized chunks of podcast promotion at an affordable monthly price. They've got us into Pod Bible, the Pod Bible magazine. Uh, we're, we're featured on, on their web, or we're due to be featured on their website. So if you're listening to this because you saw us on Pod Bible, that's how we did it. Podspike helped us out. Yeah, they're really great. Um, they've been fabulous for us to work with and the most important thing you have to know about them is there's no fake followers no complicated strategies no minimum commitment um it is there for you to use when you need it how you need it and it's a fabulous uh service they provide yeah you could you could just try it out for one month see how it goes and um and go from there yeah, so give it a try. You can check them out at their website, podspike.com, to see all of the publicity and help that they offer new and budding podcasts. Podspike, podcast marketing made easy. That was Rufus Hound. Beautiful. And guess what time it is? It is time to read your neurodivergent moments out loud on the podcast. We've, we've had some brilliant ones this week. Yes. Uh, those of you who've written in, thank you so much. Um, we will slowly but surely work through as many of them as we can. So if we don't read yours out today, we will get to it soon. And if you haven't written one in and you want to, please do at neurodivergentmomentspod at gmail.com. We've had something very exciting. Well, should we do should we do yours first? Okay, okay, because yeah, uh, Joe. Uh, I don't know what Joe's going to read exactly, but I have a feeling I'm really <laughs> going to enjoy it. So, uh, this is from Tom Webb. Uh, I'm pretty sure Tom. It's okay to say your name because you did not say it wasn't. And also, Tom Webb's an amazing comedian as well. So you Tom guys, Webb. yeah, look him up on his social medias. But so this is from Tom Webb. Hi, Abigail and Joe. Really enjoying your work and the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Was nice to hear about Nana thinking sideways. My daughter is diagnosed autistic, and I've started seeing neurodivergent traits in myself and my mother, so was relatable. So true, man. Runs in the family. My mini neurodivergent moment is actually for my daughter. She enjoys illustration and writing, so we took her to a launch for Stephanie Hughes' book, Little Me. Stephanie Hughes has autism, so my wife figured it would be a real inspiration. At the end of the event, we went to get a signed copy of the book and speak to the author. My daughter had brought along a stack of her books and used the opportunity to proudly show them off. After a heartwarming moment, the two made a trade exchange and purchased a copy of each other's book. Oh, that's so cute. So your daughter took her own. Your daughter is an author. Oh, that's so cute. Oh, oh, my heart is all pitter patter. Okay, there's more. There's more. My daughter can be very literal and sometimes misses contacts. So another time when we were ordering pizza online and had to complete the I am not a robot touring test topical we found ourselves in quite a protracted discussion about why robots cannot have pizza (laughs) (laughs) that's so sweet i love that that's keeping the robots away from dominoes yeah 
She's uh, Tom goes on to say she's a bit young for social media, but would probably love a shout out to her KW dot Startfire and her friends at Spectrum Gaming. So hello to all you wonderful people at Spectrum Gaming. That sounds so cool. Shout out to those guys. Yeah, huge shout out. And Tom goes on to say thanks for the podcast. So and thank you, Tom, for writing in such an adorable Indian moment uh, with your daughter. She sounds like an absolute peach. After that shout out, though, please turn off the podcast now because it's oh, yeah. about to come. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. So this one, this next one, not appropriate for children. So if you have children <laughs> in the room, please turn it off. We when we started this part, I think we we didn't say it, but we were both in agreement that the main reason we were doing this was so that people would send us details of their sex life. That was the main. <laughs> sort of aim with this podcast and it's finally happened i was so pleased when this happened um are you ready for this i'm so ready i can't wait to hear what this is okay um i'm really appreciating your podcast already in the same way the gender reveal podcast helped me understand the breadth of gender and thus understand why i sat within it uh shout out to gender reveal podcast uh i look forward to many many more here's my autistic moment from quite a while ago but it stuck with me i'd probably better stay anonymous for this as you can probably imagine. My new boyfriend and I were getting naked together, uh, I think that means sex, uh, for the <laughs> first time. He was in the bed already naked and I was in the doorway. I stopped to enjoy looking him over. He must have mistaken my pause because he said, don't worry, I know it's big, but I'll be gentle. In a rush to reassure him, I said, don't worry, it's the smallest one I've seen. He was quiet for quite a while after that. And then I think the most unnecessary PS ever. PS, we are both autistic. For those of you who are listening at <laughs> home, my hands are on my face. Class. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing! <laughs> Don't worry, it's the, it's the smallest one I've seen. It's the smallest <laughs> one I've seen. Way to freaking literally take him down a peg. Just... <laughs> <laughs> They were just oh, trying to reassure him. I know, and everyone who was in that is just trying to like reassure each other that it's fine, <laughs> it'll be fine, and at the same time, someone's heart is being broken. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much good intention in that story. Oh my god, I love it so much. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh my god. I think it's going to be hard for anyone to top that, but if you've got a neurodivergent moment, send it in. Yeah, please do. Again, the email is neurodivergentmomentspod at gmail.com. And I mean, I think that's that's where we got to wrap up uh, the podcast. There's no, uh, there's nothing we there's can nothing say we to can top, top that. Yeah. No, <laughs> no. But uh, Joe, are you going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe this year? We should. I am going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, I'm a Banshee Labyrinth at midday. I'm doing a show called Joe Wells colon I am autistic. Um, because I thought I'd have the most on-the-nose show title ever. Um, it's on the free fringe, so you can come and put some money in the bucket on the end, or if you're skint, you can come and just see it for free. Midday, Banshee Labyrinth for the whole of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. How about you? Are you at the Edinburgh Fringe? Yes, uh, I am going to be on at 6.20pm in the Tron with my show called Legally Cheeky, which is about how me and my boyfriend applied for me to get a visa and then were denied and had to go to court to fight the home office. So it's it's fraught with legal peril and and a love story and all that stuff. So 
Oh yeah, and it's funny because it's a comedy show. I should probably start <laughs> telling people that. But yeah, six twenty. It has an amazing poster. I know people oh, are they're you. so comfortable with the poster, but uh, is that public yet? The poster you sent it to no, me. No, the, the I sent it to you. The poster's not public yet because I put on it that I have a hundred and ten thousand TikTok followers, and I only have a hundred and four thousand right now. So <laughs> 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 to give yourself a target. Yeah, I was like. Oh, now it's getting very stressful. But, um, <laughs> so please follow Abigail on TikTok, otherwise she can't advertise her fringe show. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, follow me on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, at Abigailia. And Joe, where are you at social medias? I am at Joe Wells Comic on all of them, apart from Instagram, where I'm at Joe Wells Comedian. Okay, guys, that's the end of the podcast. We'll be back in another two weeks. Uh, sign up for the Patreon if you haven't. And thank you so much. Anything else? See you in two weeks or a week if you're on the Patreon. Yep. Bye. Bye.